Happy are those who are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Fortunate are those whom the world does not understand. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I find it a bit of a coincidence uh, that we are teaching on suffering on Mother's Day. That's... Uh, but isn't that a bit about the commitment of motherhood, suffering? Right. When you commit to being a mother, uh, don't you, even when you think about the concept of motherhood, uh, don't you include a category of suffering? Don't you? I mean, you, you have to. I mean, if you think about being a mother, if you don't include suffering in being a mother, you don't understand mothers. Uh, because even when you think about birthing, even when you, you find out, oh, we're pregnant, this is the great, wonderful gift from God, I can imagine the next thought is, whew, okay, all right, that's, there's going to come labor pains, and this is going to be painful, okay? Uh, then you have the baby, and you're, you're there for the first few weeks, months, years, depending on who you are, right? Uh, and you're like, my baby does not sleep. There's some suffering there, isn't there? I mean, uh, then your, your child gets older. Uh, even in the teen years, anybody have teenage children? Suffering, all right? right? Suffering. And it really never ends in, in some measure, right? The, the, re- the reality of suffering uh, in the life of a mother, not to leave fathers out, but the reality is there's suffering uh, in the life and joy of being a mother. It's just part of it. In the same way, we recognize, uh, even as Scripture talks about in, in Romans 8, that the world uh, is suffering in the pains of, of child labor, and like labor pains. The earth is moaning and groaning and suffering as it waits for the revealing of the sons of God and the coming of Christ. Okay, in, in the same way, uh, in Scripture, it gives us a really clear picture that as the world is culminating into the return of Christ, there is in our world true and real suffering for Christians. And, and just like a mother recognizes that I want to be a mother, I recognize there's going to be suffering, but it doesn't stop me from being a faithful mother. I'm going to be a faithful mother in spite of the suffering. I just understand that they're both together, that they both happen In the same way as Christians, as the world is even groaning, as the world is so much pain and so much sin and so much darkness, the world is groaning in the pains of childbirth, although it's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We, in the same way, understand that as Christians, uh, there's a lot of pain associated with being Christians. There is suffering associated with being Christians. Uh, and we can't say, well, I can be a Christian and not suffer if I just do my Christianity in a certain way. Well, you tell me how that works in mothering. I, I don't suffer if I just, I, I, my wife has tried this, as a matter of fact. Uh, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out and I'm going to stay in shape during my pregnancy so that my labor will be as easy as possible. And my wife did. She worked out more than I did. Uh, and she got to a place where we got to labor. My wife labored for over 32 hours. 
And I'm like, all of that working out didn't keep the, the pain from happening. Right? In the same way, we often think, if I can work out my Christianity in a certain way, pain won't be associated with it. Well, if there is a Christianity without pain, there is no Christianity at all. Right? If we say we can be Christians without recognizing the suffering attached to it, the Bible knows of nothing like that when it comes to the Christian faith. And Matthew 5.10 gives us promise. I want you to turn there in your Bible, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 10. Because it gives us promises for the persecution that is sure to come and our response and our joy to that. If you look there in Matthew chapter 10. But as you're there, what we need to understand in way of the point, the preaching point this morning, is that we need to rejoice in every suffering associated with our connection to Christ. Knowing that our persecution is proof of our heavenly citizenship. And that all our suffering for Christ comes with a promise of great reward in heaven. And that is the preaching point that should be up on the screen for you. If not, it's there in your notes. There it is. All right. And as you're flipping there, I want you to even think about James chapter 1. James chapter 1 in the first few verses says, You need to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, including persecution. Because it's, it's those things, that testing that produces steadfastness. I mean, it's the testing of your faith. The reality that your faith is being put, uh, the rubber is being put to the road. Your life is having to then reflect the convictions of your heart and the transformation that has taken place in your relationship with Christ Jesus. He's made you a new creation. Now go live it out. Testing and persecution in the life of the Christian sharpens the life of the Christian, produces steadfastness in the Christian, uh, produces the commitment to say, I'm going to align myself with Jesus Christ. And it's going to produce something in James chapter 1 that it says, uh, your version might say perfection, right? The, the Greek word teleos, right? It means completeness or wholeness, right? And to not get, in you, get you into a doctrine of perfectionism, I don't believe in a doctrine of perfectionism, that you can be perfect on this side of eternity, but you, need to, you have to do with the word and deal with it. It says teleos, perfection, wholeness. You suffering well and counting it joy to suffer for the sake of Christ produces a wholeness and a perfection in you that would not exist otherwise. And so to remove any idea of suffering, pain, and trial, and persecution in the life of the Christian, you remove so much of the joy of what it truly means to be a Christian and associate with Jesus Christ. But for those who do, we, we look to texts. Like Matthew 5. And when it says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's just parse that text out. Happy, makarios. Remember, that's the Greek word that's, the, um, that's in the title slide of our sermon series. Makarios, blessed, happy, fortunate are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I want you to notice something there. The persecution for a Christian is coming. But it's coming because of righteousness, not because of foolishness. Right? There's a lot of people who want to claim they're being persecuted for Christ when you're just being persecuted for foolishness. Don't be a fool. right? But there is, in a real way, for Christians, a joy in the fact that because I'm living for Christ, I'm going to suffer persecution. The reality is if I live out my faith... And not if, I mean, if is such a, it's a weak reality for a Christian. You don't get a choice to or to not live out your faith. Christians live out their faith. 
If they don't live out their faith, they're either not a Christian or they're going to have problems, problems with their assurance of their faith for the rest of their life because their life looks more like the world than it does looks like Christ. And so I don't want to live asking myself every day of my life, am I a Christian? Because my life looks a lot like my non-Christian um, counterparts. I want to know, how do I know if my life's looking like Christ? I don't know, are you suffering like Christ? Are you being persecuted like Christ? Are you being, are you being uh, pushed against in our culture just like the apostles were and just like the faithful uh, Christians are in, in our culture today? Like, How do I know I'm associated with Christ? Does your life look like what people who are associated with Christ's life look like? Faithful people, people that you know without a shadow of a doubt are running after the Lord. Does your life look like that? Because it says those people, because they're living righteous lives, because they say, here's the standards of God's word, and I'm going to live on those standards. Perfectly, absolutely not. When I don't, I'm going to repent. But the reality is, there's a foundation of the righteousness of Christ, which is given to me in the word of God, when it says, do, I do, when it says, don't, I don't. And as much as my life will align with those things, I will find that everything that I do in my life will be counter to what other people are doing who don't do what Christ says and don't stop doing what Christ says to stop doing. Did you see that? And as far as your life aligns with God's word, you're going to be persecuted. The minute that you start doing things that the Bible says to do because other people aren't doing them. The minute that you stop doing what you have been doing that is sin against God, and people who have been doing those things with you say, well, why did you stop doing that? Well, because that's not righteous. I'm going to live in righteousness. Well, you're going to get into conflict real quick because you're calling them unrighteous and you righteous. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a promise for those people who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. You don't belong here. Right? That's just the reality of Scripture. Your citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And you're going to look a lot like the citizens of heaven, which means you don't look a lot like the citizens of earth. I mean, just look at the Beatitudes with me. How are the kinds of people who fulfill the Beatitudes treated in our society? You tell me. Let's look at them. Matthew 5. Jesus went up to the mountain, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit. What about the poor in spirit? How are those people treated in our society? Remember poor in spirit, recognizing that you have no good apart from God, recognizing that, that you are in great need uh, of a savior, that you produce nothing good in of yourself, and you look at everyone else and say, that's the state we're all in? How is that person treated? That looks around at the world and says, we all need to be, to be poor in spirit. We all need to recognize that we have nothing good to give to God. How is that person treated? What about those who mourn? Remember those who mourn over their sin, right? Those who recognize that they have a sinful disposition and they mourn over their separation from God. People don't even want to be around people who mourn at all, much less people who are mourning about not being righteous in the sight of God. But the moment that you do, the moment that your life starts reflecting a mournfulness of your wretchedness, how do people respond to that? How do people respond when they recognize that you're calling out things in your life that they're also doing and you're calling them to be wretched and mourn as James says to do? What about the meek? Our culture doesn't want people to be meek, to be contrite, to be humble. The minute that you're doing that and calling people, if they follow Christ, to be that way, you're going to find that there's a lot of people not going to associate with you, not going to align with you. What about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? I mean, how many people of this world wants to be with somebody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? They hunger and thirst for doing everything that God's word says. Like, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you, O Lord. Like, how many people want to associate with you when everything, that, anything that you say, everything that you think is just a desire and a longing to run after Jesus? 
It's not, you're not going to find a lot of people who want to hunger and thirst like that. You're not going to find a lot of people who have their ideas and their worldview matching this idea that I want to hunger and thirst for Jesus and nothing else. I want to turn away from everything that isn't Christ, and I want to run after him, and I hunger for him. Those people are persecuted in our culture. What about the pure in heart? I forgot the merciful. What about the merciful? Well, it's one of those things in our culture we talk about, right? Uh, we like the idea of mercy until we have to live it out. We don't really like the idea of mercy. We like other people showing mercy, but me showing mercy, us holding each other accountable to showing mercy. You know, one of the realities of a church that says, hey, what the Bible says we're going to do, like everyone loves going to church. No one loves being held accountable to what the church stands for. Those people are going to be persecuted, right? Hey, you need to extend mercy because mercy has been extended to you. Absolutely. I like the idea. Okay, go do it. No, I'm not doing that. Welcome to persecution. What about the pure in heart? This one, this one really, really just, it, it strikes my heart because the pure in heart. I mean, you ever been around somebody who just all they want is purity in heart? Like their hearts have been changed by God and they have this conviction of like, I got to be careful how I talk, got to be careful how I live, who I associate with, how I associate with them. You have people who are walking in step with God and they're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Those people can be real buzzkills, can't they, to our culture? They can, right? When I'm turning on the TV and I'm like, I can't watch that. Why not, man? Why not? You watched it last year. I know, but I've grown and God is producing me this purity in my heart that I, I can't associate with this anymore. Well, dude, you're just a buzzkill. Like, welcome, right? You are being, in a very small degree, persecuted, right, socially for your connection with Christ and your desire to have a pure heart in your convictions, okay? Blessed are the peacemakers. That's another one, right? We like the idea of it, but the minute that you go up to someone and say, hey, we got a problem and Christ wants us to make peace, how's that gonna go? I know how it went because we preached this message last week and the counseling filled up, right? Because we like the idea of it, but we're like, I don't know how to do it. If I do it, they're not going to like it, and they're not going to like it, then we're going to get in a fight. Yeah, welcome to the persecution of faithful Christians who live out the Beatitudes of Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. Persecution is sure to come. And then it ends by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they're living out the Beatitudes, which basically is living out the faithfulness of Christ in their lives. You're going to be persecuted. And you're going to stand out. And I want you to notice that. People who fulfill what Christ is speaking about in the Beatitudes, they stand out in our culture. You can't help but stand out because nobody else is doing that. You're doing that because you're full of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is producing those fruits in your life. And everyone else is saying, I don't like being around you too much. Like, I like it in one sense because I know that you're going to be somebody who's above reproach and you're not going to take advantage of me and you're not going to slander behind my back, but I don't like being a mirror being held up to me every day showing me how I ought to be living and I'm not. I don't want any part of that. Right? You're going to have this struggle with our world and you've got to stand out in a sinful world. And that's point number one on your outline. Right? As much as you are progressively living out your faith, you're going to stand out in the world and you ought to. You need to stand out in a sinful world. As a matter of fact, your life is only going to stand out if you follow Christ, not just assent to the facts of the Bible. And that's one of the realities that we live in in our culture. Uh, it's sincerely, genuinely, church, uh, that we, there's this idea that so many people are Christians in our culture. No, so many people assent to the facts of the Bible in our culture. Like, most people are fine. You, you want to read a Bible verse? Go ahead, right? You want to bring your Bible to work? Go ahead. Just don't hold me accountable to what it says. 
It's like, is that a Christian? That's not a Christian. Right, a Christian says whatever that, whatever that word says, because I know it's God's authoritative word, every word in this is breathed out by God, theopanustos, all the words of the scripture are breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. I would submit myself under the teaching of God's word and obey it. You're going to stand out in a sinful world if you take this seriously. And you say, I'm not just going to not be, I mean, there's a lot of people that aren't angry about the Bible, especially in New Braunfels, Texas. Actually, we build a lot of our own platforms on the Bible in New Braunfels, Texas. We're a very religious community until we open it up and start asking ourselves, well, what, do we live it? Well, I live it when it, tells, when it says it's doing the things that I want the community to look like. But in as far as the things I'm not doing, I don't hold people accountable to it. That's not, that's not standing out in culture. That's blending in with culture. We're going to stand out in culture because we're just going to do what the Bible says. And when you do do what the Bible says, you're going to stand out and you're going to be persecuted. There's an old story that you guys are very familiar with in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, and if you want to, you can flip there with me really quickly. If not, I guess you can listen to me summarize it up. Daniel chapter 3. We have, uh, we have three friends that, that you know. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You may know them from their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Right, whose names were changed when they were uh, exiled to Babylon. Uh, there was a problem that arose because King Nebuchadnezzar there in chapter 3 and verse 6 well there in verse 1 he said he made an image of gold and he called everyone to bow down to it and he said whoever does not bow down and worship my idol shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and he says as soon as all of the music goes off as soon as all the horns sound you got to fall to your knees and worship the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up and therefore, there in verse 8, there are some Chaldeans who came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. When, when you said all these instruments go off, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fire. Well, there are some certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar got really angry heated up the fiery furnace so hot that as they were throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace that the people and the guards who threw them in there died without even being in the fire. See, I want, I want you to notice something in this text. They stood out. I mean, literally, there's no, there's no better example in Scripture of them standing out. Literally, everyone else was bowed down. They were standing up. I mean, you look around. You can see 10,000 people. There are three scraggly men in the back not bowing down. Now, living in a culture that we live in in New Braunfels, everyone's like, yeah, fight the power, right? Yeah, you know, we got we to gotta stand up for our rights. But listen to me. They weren't standing up for their rights. They were standing up for God's word. And they could stand up for God's word because they knew God's word. They knew the first commandment. 
They also recognized, in as much as they could, they would submit to the governing authorities. But when the governing authorities broke the first commandment, I could not bow down. Right? Because the same Bible that says you should submit to your governing authorities also says, thou shalt not have any other gods besides me. Okay? Do you see the need to understand your Bible? You've got to understand it because you've got to understand you've got to submit to your governing authorities. As a matter of fact, the Bible says there is no governing authority that has been set over you except for what God himself has placed there. I'm not, this, is not, this is not here about creating a revolution. This is here creating faithful Christians saying you're going to be persecuted if you just do what the Bible says. The Bible will give you plenty of opportunities to stand out in our culture, but you're going to stand out in culture because you're standing on Scripture and not standing on your own platform with the Bible. This is your platform. You're going to stand on this. And when as much as you do, you're going to do just like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you're going to stand out, and you're going to be persecuted. You know how the story ends. You know one like the Son of Man was in the furnace. Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah came out. Not a hair singed on their head. Isn't that a great outcome of persecution? Unfortunately, that's not how they all turn out. We'll get to one later that didn't turn out that way at all. But that did happen here. That's a wonderful thing. But do you remember what these three guys said? They said this. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you concerning this matter. If this be so, if you want to throw us into the fiery furnace, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, even if he does not deliver us from the furnace. If we die in that furnace, the word doesn't change. If we're delivered from the furnace, the word doesn't change. What is constant is the word of God and the suffering associated with it. The outcome we leave up to God. The outcome we leave to God. There's a couple of things that we can do as we learn from Scripture. We learn from Daniel 3. Three things quickly I want you to do in way of application. Number one, you need to stand firm on biblical principles. There's a lot of things you can fight for in our culture. And there's a lot of petty things that you can fight for in our culture. Uh, that aren't worth it. They truly are. But there are so many things in our culture that you do need to stand for, but you're only going to know how to stand for them if they're, on, if they're firmly grounded in biblical principles. Okay? You've got to find things that are held with biblical principles. One of the hot topics in our culture is abortion. Right? The reason that every church that preaches the Bible can get behind, uh, the, uh, get behind pro-life and get behind the idea that abortion should not be allowed at any stage Okay, can do that because there's biblical principle under that that says we believe all life from conception is made in the image of God. Scripture makes it clear there is no, there is no way to get around what the Bible says about that. We can get on that. Right? This doesn't make me a social justice warrior, and I'm never going to be a social justice warrior, but I am going to be someone who stands up on the foundation, the principles of Scripture, and I'm going to stand up in a world that bows down at their own whims and their own desires. And I instead, and you instead, are going to stand up on biblical principles. That's the only thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. You recognize they didn't just assent to the Bible. They understood the Old Testament. Commandment number one. And they said, well, I know that, but then he's also telling me to do this thing over here, and i got to submit, and so I'm not going to cause any problems right now. I'm just going to bow down. Like I'm bowing down on my knees, but in my mind I'm, I'm standing up, you know. Like that's, what a lot of, that's how a lot of people's Christianity has lived, right? I'm going to bow, 
physically, but in my heart, I'm standing up. You know, it's like, no, no, no. no you're going to stand up because the Bible says stand up. You're going to stand out because the Bible says you're going to stand out if you're just faithful to Scripture. But you've got to make sure that you're standing on the biblical principles of God's Word. Two, you need to swim against current culture. You've got to swim against the current culture. If you recognize it in your faith, if you're like, well, how do, I know, how do I know all those things? How do I play all that out? Well, here's just a simple litmus test. If you're swimming, which everyone's swimming in this life, and you recognize that you're swimming with the current and everyone else is going in your direction, there's a hot chance that you are not swimming against culture and you are not living according to God's word. Because simply being said that if you would follow God's word, you're going to be swimming against the current and against culture. Right? You're not out here trying to trying to battle culture. You're out here trying to be a faithful Christian, and as you're a faithful Christian, those things are going to happen, right? You see, I'm, trying, I'm reversing something in your mind here. So many Christians think, I'm out there to fight culture. No, you're out there to be a faithful Christian, and as you're a faithful Christian, you're going to recognize that the cultural fight's out there, but it's out there in the right order. I'm a faithful Christian. I'm going to have to combat culture. So many people want to say, I want to combat culture. Now I got to go find some Bible verses to help me do it. You know, it's like, no, go learn the Bible and learn how to be a faithful Christian, and the battles are coming. Do you see the difference? Do you see how we have to keep those in the right order? Okay. Thirdly, suffer when necessary. Suffer when necessary. And this brings that point to say no one should go looking for suffering. If you are going out there looking for suffering, come see me. You need counseling. Okay. You do. Uh, Don't go looking for suffering. Suffering is sure to come. So I'm not going to go look for it, but I'm also... I'm not going to run from it when it gets here. You see, there's the difference. Don't go out there looking for it, but when it comes, be ready to encounter it faithfully. You are faithful. You leave the consequences up to God. Because we understand that persecution is coming. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you see that? Like it left nobody out of it. Like if you want to live for Christ, if you want to live a godly life, you are going to be persecuted without distinction. Every single person. Everyone's like, well, I don't, like I'm a Christian. I don't get persecuted. That's, that's a problem, isn't it? Like if I, if I have no proof that my life looks anything like Christ because I don't have a lick of persecution in my life, I don't have a lick of intellectual pushback or societal pushback because you may not be tied to a stake and burned, uh, but, there's a, but you know this minute that you stand up for Christ intellectually, you're going to be reviled and persecuted, aren't you? The minute that you say, well, this is what I believe God's word says, well, that's stupid, right? You can't, you can't believe that, that's archaic. Right, you'll be socially separated from people. The minute you start standing up for Christ, you, people distance themselves from you. Your, people you thought were your friends, your coworkers, people at school, people at your church. They're like, oh, I'm a Christian, but not like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're really Christian. All right? No. Christian's Christian. Okay? You recognize that you say, well, I'm not going to get persecuted. No, you are. You will get persecuted, and you know it. And you know you'll be intellectually persecuted. You know you'll be societally persecuted. We all are going to go through persecution. But verse 11 gives us a promise in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you, and they persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then the end of verse 12 gives you another promise there. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like if they persecuted the prophets, think about this. What was a prophet? Who was a prophet? A prophet was a person called by God to be God's mouthpiece in the world. 
In the Old Testament, we had prophets. Early on in the New Testament, we had prophets. Uh, and that was before the Bible was closed, the canon of it, right? So before we have all 66 books in the New Testament, God was speaking through prophets. And they were God's mouthpiece. And they were to go out to the nations and to the surrounding people and tell them what God has for them to do or to turn from. Okay? That's what a prophet was. And it says here in verse 12 that they persecuted the prophets for aligning with God, for saying, this is what God's word, thus saith the Lord, and they were persecuted. I mean, Nehemiah 9.26 tells you, nevertheless, the people were disobedient and they rebelled against God and they cast God's law behind their backs and they killed the prophets. And all the prophets did, there's what it says in verse 26, they warned people to turn back to God because the people had created great blasphemies. The prophets literally said, hey, you need to turn from your sin. You're committing great blasphemies to God. Turn from your sin and come back to God. They killed them. Hey, that, those were the prophets. As a matter of fact, if you read through uh, the uh, DBR with us a couple of weeks ago, there was like a whole group of prophets hiding in a cave because they were all about to be murdered. We, we recognize that people who align themselves with Christ are going to be persecuted. I mean, this is literally what Jesus is telling us over and over again. You're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sakes, but blessed and fortunate are you. You need to rejoice and be glad that you're going through these persecutions because they persecuted the prophets, and your reward is great in heaven. The prophets were persecuted for two reasons, their identity and their message. Is it, I mean, I did, not even in my notes. I mean, just, just common, common sense stuff. They were persecuted for two reasons. Their message and their identity. You are not going to be a prophet. You're not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Okay? But there are two things that we share in similarities with the prophets. Our identity and our message. Doesn't change. I'm associated with Christ. The prophets were associated with God. You're, the prophets were associated with a particular message from God. Christians are associated with a particular message from God. That's why they were persecuted. Apples to apples. You're, that's why you're going to be persecuted. So yeah, and as far as you don't associate with yourself with Christ, and as far as you don't associate and proclaim the message of Christ, you won't be persecuted. But that's, but that's from you disassociating with everything that makes you who you are. And so yeah, I bet you're not being persecuted because you have no identity to our world. Yeah, you, you wouldn't be persecuted. But for those who would be associated with Christ and his message, you're going to be persecuted. Persecutions, And in this text right there, at least in verse 11, says it's going to come in, in these kind of ways. They're going to revile you. They're going to persecute you with all kinds of evil utterances. And they're going to, they're going to accuse you of things falsely, things that aren't even true. They're going to say that's you. I mean, the early church dealt with this. They were taking the Lord's Supper, and people in Rome said that they were cannibals because they were drinking blood and, and eating the flesh. And so they thought they were cannibals. That's false accusations, isn't it? They had a bad reputation then. We have a bad reputation now. Right? And you're not going to go clean up false accusations because they're false. What you're going to do is be a faithful Christian anyway. I don't have time. But I, I, you know what? That's fine. Uh, you know, like, not this past Easter, but the Easter before, we went and we invited people to Easter. We invited people to church. We were sharing the gospel with people. Somebody knocked on this one guy's door, left him a handout. Uh, he creates all these fake accounts on all kinds of platforms, social media, Google, all those things, these bad reviews, said just all kinds of things against us, blasphemous things that I would not even repeat, even, even think about in my mind. They were so evil. All lies. Okay, people are like, what are you going to do? Be faithful. 
What am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to stand out in the community and say, that's not who we are. It's like, I'm, no, I'm going to go show them who we are. Interesting enough, we're still here. Uh, all of those reviews are gone. Uh, and no, the guy, not even around. Okay? The point of the matter is, we got to be faithful. Right? We're going to be persecuted. People are going to say evil, false things against you. It doesn't give you uh, an opportunity when people do call out real things, real sins in your life, that you don't own up to them and say, well, they're just lying. No, no, no. The Bible. I mean, if you're, sin, you're in sin, you're in sin. But if you're not in sin and people falsely accuse you, false accusations. Call it what it is. But really, all these things are going to happen because of two things, your message and your identity. And when it comes to those two things, we've got to be willing to be counted with Christ. And that's point number two. You need to be willing to be counted with Christ. And that means that you're going to suffer. Be willing to be counted with Christ. Stephen's a great example of this, isn't he, in the New Testament? It's amazing how faithful of a steward Stephen was as a deacon of the early church. You see him in Acts chapter 6. He's out and he's proclaiming the word, doing many wonderless, miraculous things in front of the people, leading them to Christ, preaching the gospel message. And there were just a group of people, uh, some from the synagogues of the freedmen's and some of the other synagogues, did not like his message. And what they did in response to that message in Acts 6 was they reviled him and they created false accusations that would be worthy to create a riot to stir people up and to shut him up and to persecute him. And so that's what was going on. And then Stephen then spends like the next 55 verses preaching the whole Bible. I love it. It's like there's a, there's a much more truncated version of the gospel in Acts. And Stephen says, not me. This is it. This is my going home message. You know? And he preaches the whole Bible in like 55 verses, like starting from the beginning. And he goes all the way. And he's like, and listen, you guys, your forefathers persecuted the prophets. Of course you're going to persecute me. It's literally what he tells them. You stiff-necked people, you won't listen to anybody that God sends to you. If you just repent, just turn, just trust in Christ who died. You, pers- you killed Jesus. You killed the prophets. Of course you're going to come here and kill me. And after he's done, you know what they do? Kill him. They killed him. Right? He was faithful, left the results up to God. And as he was being stoned to death, he looks his eyes into, into heaven. Scripture says that the heavens opened. He saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and then he had peace in his heart. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The same thing that, that Jesus said. He says, as he's being persecuted to death, they lied on him, they murdered him, they rejected him, and he said, I'm just here for the gospel. Right? And that's what you should really get out of this. You need to recognize, and I've, I've said it in length already, but a couple of things in way of application. You need to expect false representations of your faith. You need to. You have to expect false representations of your faith. I mean, people do it all the time. My brother, who's not a Christian, was talking to me. He's like, he was giving me all kinds of false representations about what a Christian is and isn't. And I'm like, well, all I know is what the Bible tells me about me being a Christian. And that's where I can point you. That's it. That's what I told him. And we talk about what God's word says about being a Christian. And you need to point people, secondly, point people to Christ through the gospel. That's what Stephen did. I love that. I love when you look at the Christians in Scripture and the Christians through history who suffered. They, won't, they don't suffer like you and I would suffer. They suffer because they've been, they've been sanctified to a place in their life where they're not concerned about their suffering. They're concerned about the gospel. It's not like sanctify me, God, to a place where I'm more concerned about the gospel than I am about my own suffering. Because that's what you see throughout Scripture and throughout church history is those who are faithful are willing to suffer and to make the gospel foremost in their life. 
and they leave the results to God. We've got to point people to Christ. Even on the cross, you recognize Jesus on the cross, dying in utter agony, looks over to the thief who was reviling him earlier, then started confessing Christ as Lord and the Son of God. And Jesus looks over and says, you're coming with me. Like, you will be in paradise with me today. I mean, Jesus dying on the cross, suffering in great agony, he looks over and he says, one more. One more is coming. Like, I love that. It's like, he's dying, and it still wasn't about him. It was about the Father, and it was about reconciling people to himself. And yet, so often, when, when we get a hangnail in the way of suffering, we're like, oh, it's just so painful. Like, there's somebody saying mean things about me on social media. It's like, guys... Get a hold of the gospel. Let it get a hold of your heart. And you will recognize that persecution is sure to come. Hmm. All right. Thirdly, don't be surprised when suffering comes. That is one thing I want to make sure that our church, at Compass Bible Church, we're not surprised when suffering comes. It's one of the things that, that surprises me most about the Christian culture we live in. It's like once you go out there and you're faithful, people are like, well, why did they do that? What do you mean, why did they do that? Like, the, it tells you why they did They don't want to hear the gospel. Like, I, they, don't, they do it because they're enemies of the cross. They do that because they're children of wrath. You think you're just going to go up to a child of wrath, call him a child of wrath, and expect nothing to come back on you? Like, as a matter of fact, I didn't say this. Peter says this. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Jot that down. Beloved, and that's how I should talk to you. Beloved, lovely ones of Christ Jesus at Compass. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, it's not strange when you get persecuted. As a matter of fact, Scripture testifies it's strange when you don't. Right? And that's really your mindset. It's like as you go out and live for the Lord, if you do something, you stand up for Christ in the public square at home or wherever you're at, and something doesn't happen, I'd be like, well, that's strange. That's peculiar that I didn't get persecuted for that. Praise be to the Lord. I'm going to move on and go be faithful. But so many of us are like, we're faithful once and we get persecuted. Then we're like, well, I don't want to do that again because I was persecuted. And that's strange. It's like, no, 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 that's the norm. As a matter of fact, it's what it says in verse 13. There's a lot of a matter of facts in the sermon. Because it says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There's, there's the responsibility for us. We're going to suffer. Don't think it's strange. But you should rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Remember birth pains? There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. Uh, but when the baby's born, mom and dad, and everyone's like, yeah. It's like, did y'all not just see what happened? What you mean, yeah? It's like, well, you know what they mean, yeah. Like, that's awesome. It's like in the same way we're like, oh, man, it's hard here. But yeah, it's coming. Right? We get to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And that's the hope of our faith, isn't it? We endure because we know what's going to be revealed. And, and look, look at uh, our last, last section here. I chopped it up in a couple of different verses. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted in the end of verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Verse 12, your reward is great in heaven. So we talk a lot about your future inheritance. Your future inheritance is going to come in way of the kingdom and is going to come in the way of rewards in God's kingdom. That's why the labor, all of the work that's going in here, all the persecution that you're having to deal with here, it's coming when Christ reveals himself, you get, you're a child of the kingdom and you receive rewards in the kingdom. Like what is there not to be glad about and rejoice in because we know these things are coming. I was talking to my Wednesday night life group this last week and we talked about the failure of some churches to adequately account for the Bible's doctrine on rewards 
Uh, and th- the biggest concern is, because I think the church, I believe, and not just me, most faithful preachers uh, who want to preach God's word and just whatever the text says, I want to preach it. Uh, the concern is the reason that the church has historically shied away from rewards is because of cults, uh, the Catholic church, uh, the doctrines of these churches who do not hold to the Bible's teachings. And so instead of faithfully teaching about rewards in the Bible, we have shoved them off somewhere unbiblically because we don't want to be associated with JWs or Mormons. or, or we, we, want to, we don't want to be associated with them, so we just don't teach about it. It's the same reason why your churches don't talk a lot about good works. Although if you read the letter of Titus, it says you ought to produce good works like five times. Like the entire letter to Titus, you should read it sometime, is all about good works. But you don't hear about that a lot. And the concern about that is, well, we're not learning the whole Bible then. We're learning some good parts, but we're not learning the whole thing. And rewards is the same thing. The Bible talks about rewards. Jesus talks about rewards three times in the next half chapter. And so we got to ask, what do you mean reward? What does the Bible say about rewards? People will say, well, isn't heaven our reward? Isn't Christ our reward? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely, Christ is our reward. Absolutely, heaven is our reward. But you, you have been saved for Christ, right? You've been saved in him, and you have been saved for him. But Christ is also in Scripture promised over and over that he will reward his faithful followers in the kingdom to come. One of the, the bad doctrine, the uh, heresy, and the cult doctrine that we often get about rewards is we separate Christ from the rewards. We say that rewards is something and Christ is something. It's like you, you, have, to, you have to separate, you have to get rid of that idea. That is bad doctrine and good job for, for understanding. That's heresy. Christ is our reward and he comes bearing his reward. Did you see that? I get Christ and his reward. So I get him and I also get his reward. I get what he's giving. Right? I can't say, well, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to get all of these things. It's like you get Christ and whatever he gives you. There's reward. As a matter of fact, does Revelation 22, go read Revelation 22. It says this, Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon, and I bring my recompense with me to give to each one what they have done. Recompense is a very old word for payment. I'm, giving, I'm coming to give to people what they have done here on earth. I'm not just talking about, this. I'm not talking about the non-Christians who, who are going to get wrath. I'm talking about Christians. I'm going to give them what they have done well, Pastor, I thought we didn't work for uh, our position with God. We don't work with our position of salvation. That's, that's called justification. You don't work for justification. It's a free gift from God that no one may boast. You're saved by faith and grace alone. Okay? That's justification. We're not talking about justification. justification. We're talking about the rewards for faithful servanthood and obedience to Christ here on earth while he has saved you here, awaiting for the kingdom to come. Your reward is always connected to Christ, and it flows from Christ. Many people, the problem is, is they think that we, people confuse rewards because they see rewards as a substitute for Christ. Well, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to to divorce Christ, and I'm going to substitute that with rewards. Yeah, that's, that's heresy. But when you understand that rewards aren't a substitute for Christ... We receive rewards in heaven from Christ as we focus on Christ. Also, our rewards don't have a one-on-one return on investment. That's another bad theology. This idea that the reason why many people think rewards are, uh, are taboo in Scripture is because you think that if I give $10 here, it's going to like magically transfer itself and I'm going to get $10 in heaven. 
It's like, well, that, yeah, that, that would be bad doctrine for rewards. Like, that is not how it works. Like, nothing you can do here uh, is going to merit anything there besides what God desires it to merit you. You understand that? God's system for rewards isn't one-to-one. If I give, if I give $50 here, I'm going to get $50 there. No, you understand that what you give up here is nothing in comparison to what you're going to receive there. Like, it's like, it's like you give your like burnt cookie here and he gives you a bakery there. Okay. You understand what I'm saying, right? You understand this picture. The picture is, is why do I know that it's not a work and why do I know I can have good theology and understand reward system? Because if you understand rewards biblically, they're still gifts, you don't work for them because all the best you can give is just little to nothing. But yet God desires, as a good father, to give you good gifts. And for some reason, we believe that here, but we don't believe that in eternity where endless joy and pleasure and joy of the father are going to be. Right? Don't you believe that it is the will of father to give good gifts to his children? Doesn't scripture say that? We believe that? Do you? Look at me. Do you believe that? But you don't believe that in heaven. People say, well, shouldn't we not work for the reward? Do you give rewards to your kids? Give me yes or no. Do you motivate your children with rewards when they do things that are characteristic of the attributes you want them to imitate? Yes or no? You do. Uh, and when they, when they do what they're asked to do and you give them their reward, do you, look back, do you look at them and say, sicko, why do you want that thing? Why do you want that? You want me. And if you don't want me, then you ain't getting that. You don't say that, do you? Because you know that any, all your children love you, right? Do you know that? Your children love you, and it's also uh, out of your love that you would give rewards. So there is no like, well, that child doesn't love me. I'm trying to make him love me more. Like, that's, that's not, your love for your children and your children's love for you don't work that way. They don't work that way in heaven either. Right? There's no one in heaven going to get behind God's back and try to get something that God wasn't going to give them because he confused God and made God think about him as something that he really wasn't. Did y'all follow me there? God's going to reward people based on their faithfulness out of his love for them and out of their obedience to him, and it's going to be perfectly just. Did you hear that? Remember we talk about justice a lot? Even God's rewards are going to be they're going to just. They're going to be perfectly measured out according to his grace and his love and his goodness. Rewards are simply a part of your eternal inheritance that you can count on being there as you live here focused on Christ. And that's point number three. You need to stay focused on your future with Christ. Stay focused on your future with Christ. Right? If your whole doctrine becomes about rewards, I think you've gone too far. Right? If your whole idea of heaven is simply that you're going to get all these things, then I th- you've missed it. Right? Just like your children don't look at you as a parent and say, well, all I, the greatest thing I love about my parents is what they give me. No, they love you because you're their parents and they want to go spend time with you. I'm driving up to my parents today to go celebrate Mother's Day in five hours from here. And the last thing I'm expecting to get is a gift. Last thing I'm expecting to get. Okay. Uh, But we got gifts from my mom for Mother's Day. We got gifts from my father for Father's Day. I love them, so I'm going to do good things for them as a child. Right? And I know also that my parents, in as much as they can and as much as they would, they would give me good gifts. So I'm just saying... Your idea of even the way that you relate to your children, don't even, they don't even compare to the way God loves his children and the way that you ought to love God. <laughs> Gifts are part of relationships. Okay, can I give you one more verse that I want you to turn to? 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn there because it's one of the foremost texts on this idea of rewards in heaven. 
Start with me there in verse 5. So people were uh, there in the church in, in Corinth, and they were like, uh, they, were, they were like, what am I, 29? Like, I follow, one says, but the people were like getting jealous because of uh, stature. And, you know, I was led to Christ by Paul. I was led to Christ by Apollos. And here's what, here's what Paul says. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Aren't they just servants through whom you believe? Is the Lord assigned to each? Then he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Well, we're good so far, aren't we? That sounds about like, that sounds like biblical Christianity so far, right? But only God who gives the growth, he, oh, no, I already said that one, right there. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Well, now we're starting to hear something a little bit different, right? As I am leading people to Christ, as I am making disciples, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Are they going to receive salvation according to their work? You tell me. No, but they are going to receive wages according to their labor. They're going to receive reward based on their responsibility and their stewardship. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and God's building. Now listen to this. According to the grace of God giving me, like a skillful master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds on it. Paul said, I came in to preach the gospel, and we laid the foundation of Jesus Christ, and, and Apollos was coming, and he's doing his work too. We're all just workers for God. But now listen. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's a foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Is that a capital or a lowercase d in your Bible? Capital D, right? Why? Because it's, it's a noun, it's a time, that's a place, the day of judgment. There's a day we're all going to be held accountable for how we've lived, and the day will disclose it because it's going to be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Are you, are you included in each one? Am I included in each one? Yes, right, everyone. Right? Everyone's work will be disclosed on the day. And listen what happens. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, who's the foundation? You tell me, Jesus Christ. Okay, if anyone who has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, not him, his work, right? Did you hear that? His work, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So you see that, right? If anyone builds with wood, hay, and straw, the fire is going to burn that up because it does that here. It's going to do that there. Uh, their work will be lost, and they will suffer loss. So in the presence of God, there will be genuine Christians who suffer loss because of how they lived their lives here, including the way that they suffered, including the way that they were willingly uh, desiring to associate themselves with Christ. But it says, what is the next phrase? Though he himself will be saved. Well, why is he saved? Because he's on the foundation of Jesus Christ. His works are going to be burned up. This, the bad stewardship that he spent all these decades of his life living on uh, he was saved because he was on the foundation of Christ, but he built with wood, hay, and straw. He built things that the Bible should, says it doesn't care about, that God doesn't care about. He didn't build his life on Scripture. He didn't apply Scripture to his life in a way where the things that he did mattered in eternity. But he will be saved, but only as through fire. But it says, the ones who do build with precious jewels, silver, and gold, 
it will make it through the fire, verse 14, and he will receive a reward. Did you see that? In eternity, on the day, it will be burned up. On the day, it will be there because it was precious jewels, silver and gold, and it will still be there. And then God will give him a reward as his recompense for his faithfulness. Now, isn't it interesting? We're talking about rewards and we're talking about persecution. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that counterintuitive? Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Isn't that counterintuitive? The reality is God doesn't judge how man judges. And what we got to recognize is Christ does have a reward. He is our reward. Heaven is our reward. And Christ also has his reward waiting for those who will be good stewards here, particularly as they suffer well for Christ and they don't turn away from Christ and they don't try to be chameleons in our culture. Because at the end of the day, what we want to do is be faithful stewards of God. And being faithful stewards in our suffering provides two things in closing. Provides great assurance for your faith today. Right? No one's questioning their faith when they're being persecuted because the world is assuring them of their faith because of their persecution. And secondly, as you are building in this life with gold, silver, and precious jewels, you recognize that you're losing out on a lot of things here for there. And so what that does is that gives you great anticipation in when the kingdom of heaven is revealed because all your stuff is there anyway. Do you see that? All of our stuff is there. So what suffering well in our culture does is it helps you have assurance and it helps you look forward to the day when the kingdom comes. Let's pray. God, I know this uh, sermon's heavy on Mother's Day. It's heavy. Uh, but God, we don't want our sermon calendar to be dictated by holidays. We want our sermon to be dictated by your sovereignty. And whatever your text says, we're going to preach that. And we want to preach about suffering. We want to preach about rewards. We want to preach about whatever's in the Bible. God, we don't want to major on anything that you don't major in. God, we want to minor on the things the Bible minors in. We want to major on the things the Bible majors in. Uh, but something that is clear in Scripture, when we come upon it, is both the reality of the suffering, the reality of faithful saints being, being persecuted in this world, and secondly, the reality that there is reward awaiting in heaven for the faithful stewards that have been entrusted to us, the gospel, the message of Christ. And as we live our lives here, everything you've been given to us is a stewardship to be uh, used well for your glory, for the advancement of the gospel. And you said that he who lives this life will by no means lose a reward in heaven. God, we don't exist here simply because we think there are rewards there. We recognize that as you are a loving heavenly father and as Christ is the exalted son uh, in that, as your word says, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore in your presence is fullness of joy. And God, we can't even imagine to know what all of that is and what it looks like, but we know you've promised it. And so we are eagerly excited and awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, the reality of the kingdom of heaven, and our presence with you for eternity. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.